Well, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at several famous passages from the book of Isaiah, and today we're going to look at another such passage as we come to the first of three prophecies about the birth of Jesus that we find in Isaiah chapters 7 through 12. Today we're going to look at the, the prophecy that declared that someday a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son whose name would mean God is with us or God with us. So today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 through chapter 8 verse 10. If you have a Bible, I'd urge you to turn there. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to see the historical context that stands behind this prophecy. Second, we're going to look at the prophecy itself. And then third, we're going to see that surprisingly, this prophecy seems to have two fulfillments. One, an earlier and partial fulfillment, which anticipates a later and ultimate fulfillment that's found in the birth of Jesus. So that's where we're going to be going this morning. And without further ado, let's jump right into our first point in which we talk about the historical background to this important prophecy, which Isaiah sets out for us in the opening verses of this chapter. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 reads, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And we'll stop there. As we begin today, a substantial amount of time has passed since chapter 6. You might remember that chapter 6 took place in the year that King Uzziah died. That was when God called Isaiah to become a prophet. And now a number of years have passed, 10 or 15 years, and it's about 725 B.C. Uzziah is dead, and Jotham, his son, is also dead, and good King Uzziah's grandson Ahaz reigns. But Ahaz was not a good king. 2 Chronicles 28 says, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he made metal images for the Baals, and he burned his sons as an offering, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and the hills and under every green tree. This man Ahaz worshipped every god except the real one. He promoted false religions. He murdered his children by sacrificing them to a demon. He was a terribly wicked man. And God judged him for his wickedness by raising up powerful nations to oppose him. Again, verse 1. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. During this period of history, the Israelites were divided into two nations. Ahaz ruled over Judah to the south, but there was also a northern kingdom, which was sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. And here, God punishes wicked Ahaz by bringing together an alliance of two countries to his north, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. Not Assyria. We'll talk about Assyria in a minute. This is plain old Syria. Now, this alliance was a terrifying thing to the people of Judah. They were scary because they were strong. 2 Chronicles 28 tells us this alliance dominated Judah in the early battles of this war. And beyond just being powerful invaders, 
This alliance was scary because their leaders made very clear what their intentions were. They were going to destroy the independence and the sovereignty of Judah. They were going to destroy the royal house of David. And they were going to install a puppet king in Jerusalem, a man referred to as the son of Tabeel. And so this alliance was an existential threat to Judah and its leadership. And its citizens and even the members of the royal house of David were terrified. What are we going to do against these powerful enemies? Well, Ahaz came up with a plan. 2 Kings 16.7 says, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Assyria. Saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. Assyria was the most powerful and wicked nation on earth at that time. If you want to know what they were like, think of the Nazis. They were really strong and really evil. And Ahaz has this idea. If I bribe the king of Assyria, maybe he'll come defeat my enemies for me. Ahaz thinks a political solution will solve all his problems. We're going to see how that works out for him in just a minute. But that's the situation at the start of chapter 7. Now into this situation, God graciously speaks. And he sends a message to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Isaiah is to go out and meet Ahaz. And he is to take his son with him. Now, we don't know a lot about Isaiah's family life, the little bit that we know we're going to talk about today. But at this point, we know that Isaiah had at least one son. And for reasons I'll discuss later, it seems likely that Isaiah's wife has died by this point. So Isaiah is raising this boy. And the boy has a very interesting name, which means a remnant shall return. It's a name with prophetic significance. It says to the people of Judah, defeat is coming, but God's not going to abandon you. A remnant will survive. And that was part of the message God wanted to give Ahaz, the message of Shear Jashub's name. But more than that, Isaiah is to speak to Ahaz. Look at verse 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the Fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Hermelia. Say, so what's this mean? Here's the idea. The invading alliance Ahaz is afraid of isn't as strong as he thinks. God says they're like a candle wick that's burned out. The strength they had is gone. Verse 5, God says further to him, Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Hermelia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia, and I'll finish that here in just a minute. But this is what God says to Ahaz. Look, I know you've got powerful enemies, but I'm not going to let them vanquish you. Why not? Ahaz is a really bad dude. Ahaz doesn't love God. Why should God rescue Ahaz? Because Ahaz is the descendant of King David. 
And God swore to David in 2 Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God swore the Davidic dynasty would endure. And God is always faithful to his word. Even if Ahaz is evil, even if God judges Ahaz by bringing these enemies against him, God isn't going to let some imposter puppet king displace the house of David in Jerusalem. So God says to Ahaz, your enemies are going to be gone. Within 65 years, they won't even exist anymore. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, within a very short period of time after this, both the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria were wiped off the map. And what God is saying here is you don't need Assyria to make this happen. I have spoken. I will give you victory. And here's what God says to Ahaz. Verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God says, I'm going to destroy your enemies. I'm going to secure your throne. But if you want to stand firm, if you want to stand firm in this crisis and in your life and going forward, you've got to stop trusting in idols. You've got to stop trusting in politics. You've got to stop trusting in Assyria. You need to trust the Lord. Because God's the only one who can defeat all the enemies you have. God's the only one who can give you strength. So repent and believe. God graciously invites Ahaz to trust him. And what's more, God offers an extraordinary gift to Ahaz to help him believe. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. This is what Isaiah says. Because God cares about you, evil man that you are. God loves you. And he is willing to give you a gift to help you have the faith you need in the middle of this crisis. Because you're the anointed king. God is going to help you have faith. And here's how God's going to work a miracle for you. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, you can ask God for anything. Anything as far down as Sheol, the abode of the dead. You want to raise the dead? Ahaz, God will do it for you. He says, you can make it as high as heaven. Something in the sky, like writing you know, God's name in the clouds. He'd do it. In fact, a generation later, God would work a sign for Ahaz's own child, moving the sun backwards across the sky. He wanted that. He could have had it. God says, ask me anything, and I'll do it to help you believe. So Ahaz was awestruck by God's kindness, and he repented and believed, right? Not so much. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Sometimes in the Bible, we read about the sin of putting the Lord to the test. Somebody says, God, I'll believe in you, but first you've got to prove yourself to me with a miracle. Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember, Jesus quoted that to Satan. It's a terrible sin to take that kind of attitude. God, you've got to perform tricks for me, or otherwise I have no loyalty to you. And Ahaz now says, I don't want to ask God for that sign, because that would put the Lord to the test. Oh, he sounds very pious and devout, doesn't he? But he isn't. This is a very old trick you still see today. People acting sinfully towards God, and then they couch their sin in religious language to make themselves look good. Ahaz isn't putting God to the test here if he asks for a sign. God told him to ask for a sign. But instead of receiving God's sign, Ahaz disobeys God and refuses. Why does he disobey God? You might think, man, God offered me a miracle. I jump all over that. Why does Ahaz not want a sign from God? 
Because if God performs a sign for him, then he's going to have to believe. But he doesn't want to believe. He doesn't want to give up his idols. He doesn't want to give up his politics. He wants to remain in his sin, and he doesn't want to have faith. And what he wants to do is to say no to God and make all the people who are witnessing this say, Oh, Ahaz, you're so spiritual. You're so godly. Ahaz twists the scriptures as a pretext for disobedience. Now, this is the background of the prophecy we're going to look at. These verses teach us three things we need to know. Number one, friends, God is always faithful to his word. God lives up to his promises. We see here God is so committed to his promise to King David, he's even willing to protect evil Ahaz. Because God's word's always good, and so we can trust him. Number two, God is always faithful to his people. In the Old Testament, God had a covenant with the nation of Israel. And God was always faithful to Israel, even when Israel wasn't faithful to God. And friends, you know, that's still true for believers in Jesus Christ today. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, if we're faithless believers today, God's faithfulness towards us might be to discipline us, to get us back on the path we should be on. But God's always faithful to his people. He's never going to abandon those who truly belong to Jesus. But the third thing I want you to see here is that unbelievers always have an excuse. A lot of people today go around and say, God will, if he proves himself to me, I'll believe in him, right? You've probably heard people say this. But you know what would happen if God offered them a sign? The same thing that happened when Ahaz would offer a sign, was offered a sign. They would refuse it. Because in the end, the issue is they don't really care about the sign. The issue is they don't want to believe. Friends, God has already proven himself in this world. He has created the universe. He has created life. He doesn't owe us any more proof. He's given us a lot more proof than we deserve. The evidence is clear. The problem isn't a lack of evidence. The problem is a lack of willingness to accept the evidence because of unbelief. Because the natural human heart is dead in its sins. The truth is people will not be willing or able to accept the evidence for God until God imparts a new life to them. All the apologetics in the world cannot by themselves unharden the sinful human heart. That's not to say that apologetics don't matter. They do. They encourage believers and they help us respond to people that would attack our faith. But friends, understand that faith must precede a person's willingness to believe the evidence for Christ. Because the heart is deceitful. And people can always come up with another excuse why not to believe. And often, like Ahaz, they'll try to make their excuse sound righteous. So, that's what we see in our first point. Man is unfaithful and God is faithful. Now we come to our second point, And here we encounter this glorious prophecy that points to the birth of Jesus. Ahaz has refused to trust God. He's refused the sign. And in many ways, this represents a huge turning point for the kingdom of Judah and the house of David. From this moment on, for the next 150 years, things are basically going to go downhill. There will be a few good kings and a few bright spots, but pretty much they're locked into a bad path as a result of this choice. And it's going to end with exile and slavery. And so this man, thinking he's being cute and funny, is actually generating a terribly consequential sin. And his wickedness merits a sharp rebuke. Verse 13. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David... Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah says to Ahaz, are you kidding me? 
You don't want God's miracle? You reject God's kindness? What a joke. Get it together. And as mad as Isaiah is, God's even more angry, not just with Ahaz, but with the whole dynasty that's become corrupt. And yet while God is disgusted by this man and his wicked unbelief, he's still faithful and good to his word. God swore he would defeat Ahaz's enemies, and God is going to keep that promise. More than that, Isaiah declares this in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. God said to Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign to help you believe. Ahaz said, no thanks. God says, I'm going to give you the sign anyway. I'm still going to perform a miracle to show my faithfulness as a testimony to Ahaz. And not just for Ahaz. This word you here is plural. And it points back to verse 13. This sign is given for the benefit of the entire house of David, the whole royal family in Ahaz's day, and for every member of that royal family going forward for the years and centuries to come. Now, what is the sign God says he will perform? Verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign that God promises to give to Ahaz and the house of David, is a child. Now, there are two things about this son that Isaiah emphasizes. First, we're told something about his mother, that she will be a virgin, and the Hebrew word here is alma. Now, with your permission, I'm going to go on a little bit of an excursus here that's relevant because of controversy related to the translation of this word. In 1950, a translation of the Bible was published called the Revised Standard Version. And it translated this verse a bit differently, and it led to an intense controversy. So let me tell you a little bit about it. In Matthew chapter 1, we're told that Isaiah prophesied a virgin will conceive. And when Matthew quotes this prophecy in his book, he translates Isaiah's Hebrew word alma with a Greek word parthenos. And parthenos is a word that unambiguously means virgin. It means someone who has not had sex. And in presenting this quotation from Isaiah 7, Matthew is actually quoting from a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament prepared around 200 B.C. And in the Septuagint, the translators decided to translate Isaiah's word, Alma, virgin here, with this same Greek word, Parthenos, that unambiguously means a virgin. But by 1950, there was a lot of liberal scholarship in New Testament departments, and the RSV translators listened to some of these guys, and they decided this was not a good translation for this verse. They said the Septuagint and Matthew were wrong when they translated Isaiah's Hebrew word alma with the Greek word meaning virgin. They said alma does not mean virgin. It just means a young girl of marriageable age who was still unmarried. And they produced some biblical evidence that supported this interpretation. And they also said, if Isaiah really meant to emphasize this woman's virginity, he would have used a different Hebrew word, betula, which they claimed always speaks explicitly of a woman who is a virgin, instead of this less clear term, alma. So the RSV translated this verse by saying, a young woman shall conceive. And their decision caused a huge controversy that's raged for 70 years. Uh, this is what spawned the King James Only movement, if you guys were ever curious about that. It was a response to this decision. It just caused a huge mess. 
what should we say about this controversy and the translation of this word Alma? What does Isaiah mean when he talks about an Alma? Well, to start, I've got to say the translators of the RSV were correct in part. If you're looking for the simplest translation of this word that explains all of its usage throughout the Old Testament, yes, you might translate it with the word maiden or a young woman of marriageable age. And yes, Isaiah has chosen to use a more vague term than we might expect if he wants to emphasize virginity here. We'll talk about why that might be in a minute. But even though Alma, strictly speaking, can simply mean a maiden, that does not mean that we should not translate this verse, a virgin shall conceive anyway. In fact, there are three very good reasons why we should understand Isaiah here to be talking about a virgin in particular. Number one. Isaiah's day was a bit different than our day. In our world today, many young unmarried people are not virgins because the sin of premarital sex is widely committed. And so today, young unmarried people in our culture may either be virgins or non-virgins. That is quite different than how things were in Isaiah's day. In Old Testament Israel, the sin of premarital sex was not widely committed because if it was committed, the law said one of two things would happen. Number one, you might be compelled into an immediate marriage that could never be dissolved by divorce. Or number two, you could get the death penalty. So, if you were having sex in Isaiah's day as a young unmarried person, you wouldn't stay as a young unmarried person for very long. You either became a young married person or a young dead person. But young unmarried women of marriageable age would certainly all be expected to be virgins. So it's very reasonable to expect that Isaiah's Alma is a virgin. Second, we know that a number of people who were much closer in time and cultural situation to Isaiah understood this verse to be talking about a virgin. Because the Septuagint translated Alma here by using a Greek word that very clearly means virgin. And we know this happened about 200 years before Jesus was born. And that this must have been a very common Jewish understanding of this prophecy. And we know that because the Septuagint became the most widely used edition of the Old Testament in the first century. If the Jews didn't like this translation, they wouldn't be using the Bible that had it. So the idea that Alma means virgin seems to be the way that many, if not most, ancient Jews understood this prophecy. And there would be a very good reason for them to understand that was what Isaiah was saying. And this is my third answer. Which is that if you read this verse in its immediate context... Translating this word as virgin is the only sensible translation to make. Because what is Isaiah saying here? The Lord is going to perform a miracle. The sort of thing Isaiah said back in verse 11 is going to be as astonishing as the dead being raised or the sun moving backwards in the sky. This has to be some kind of a stupendous miracle. Now, is it a miracle if a young woman conceives and has a son? Obviously not. Now, I know a lot of us like to talk about the birth of any young child as a miracle. But from a definitional perspective, what is a miracle? A miracle is that which could not happen if the laws of nature were left to work on their own. Now, from that perspective, is a young woman giving birth to a child a miracle? No, it happens all the time, right? But a virgin conceiving? That fits the bill. That's a stupendous miracle. So I hope you can see here there are three very good reasons to translate 
Isaiah 7, 14 by saying, a virgin shall conceive. There are, I think in a lot of ways, it's the best translation. And yet, when God gave this prophecy to Isaiah, God chose a word that did not explicitly emphasize virginity. Now, I just said virginity should be inferred from this word. But God doesn't set it out as explicitly as we might expect. And I think that's deliberate. In an ultimate and final sense, this prophecy of the Alma points to a virgin birth. But the word is fungible enough it can also be taken in another way. And I think that's why God used this word in this prophecy. Because we're going to see in a minute, the Bible seems to tell us that there are two ways in which this verse was fulfilled. And so this, this more vague term allows both of the fulfillments to meet the, the, the criteria set forth in this prophecy. But before we go further down that road, let's consider the second noteworthy point about verse 14, which is that this verse also says something very interesting about the son. The son will be called Emmanuel, and this name means God with us. We'll say more about that in a minute, too. So when Alma will conceive, she will give birth to a son. He will be called God with us. Now, at this point, we might say, wow, this really sounds like an amazing prophecy about the birth of Jesus, right? And we might be ready to jump ahead to the end and say, let's talk about how Jesus fulfills this. But much to our surprise, this isn't where Isaiah leaves things. The prophecy continues. And as he continues, Isaiah is going to say some things about this child that we might not expect. Look at verse 15. Isaiah says, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Isaiah says by the time this child's old enough to know what's right and wrong, by the time he's like two or three, some really significant events are going to happen. Number one, the invading alliance that's threatening King Ahaz is going to be destroyed. Syria and Israel are going to be wiped off the map. Now, that's really interesting. Because when we read verse 14, we immediately think about Jesus. And yet, friends, I would tell you, we cannot forget that in context, verse 14 is the sign that Ahaz was offered and which he rejected. The prophesied child is the miracle that God gives to Ahaz and his contemporaries so that they can see and remember God is faithful to us even though we're under attack and even though we've done evil things. This child is to be assigned to those folks that God would destroy their enemies over the next few years. And remember, this was 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, you might look at verse 16 and say, well, wait a minute. This passage says, by the time the child turns three, indeed Israel and Syria will be destroyed. And that's what happened. There's no problem here. And that's true. But if God is giving a sign as a visible symbol to Ahaz in the 700s B.C., that God's going to be faithful to him and to his house, I don't see how it works if the only fulfillment of that prophecy doesn't happen until 700 years after Ahaz is dead. That wouldn't be much of a visible sign of God's kindness for him to look at, right? If, it, if he doesn't live to see it happen. Instead, this would just be another prophecy he could choose to disbelieve. But that's not what God said he was going to give him. God said he was going to give him a visible sign that Ahaz could see and know that God was going to deliver him. And so here I think things get a little bit complicated. Because verse 14 certainly looks to be talking about the birth of Jesus. 
700 years after Ahaz. And the New Testament tells us that's correct. But verse 16 seems to be telling us that this prophesied child would be born in the near future, not the far future. What do we make of this? Well, let's keep going and trust God will sort it out by the end of the sermon. I hope he will. Uh, verse 16 says, by the time this child's two or three, the invaders will be destroyed. More than that, verse 15 says that by this same time, something really significant is going to happen in the land of Judah. We're told that this child is going to eat honey and curds. A similar comment about eating honey and curds is made in verse 22. And this reference speaks of the idea that the promised land is going to become massively depopulated. Farming is going to end, and nature is going to be set free to run its course. Animals will just produce whatever they would produce without a farmer there to regulate what's happening. So a ton of milk will be made, and it's going to curdle. Bees will be free to build honeycombs everywhere. Very soon the land is going to become basically empty. And why? Well, Isaiah tells us, verse 17, he says, The Lord will bring upon you, Ahaz, and upon your people and your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, from the split of the, of the nation of Israel. Bad times are coming. And why? Because of the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with the razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria. He will shave the head and hair of the feet and sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Here's the big idea of this chapter, I think. King Ahaz faces this invading alliance. And instead of trusting God, what does he do? He says, I'm going to trust Assyria to help me. And here's what God says. The Assyrians that you think are going to help you are going to betray you. They're going to turn on you. After they destroy your enemies, they're going to come after you. They're going to come in and cause so much destruction and wipe out so much, it's going to be like a human body that's lost all of its hair. Only a little remnant's going to be left. And everything's going to be desolation. The farms will be gone. The animals and plants will be in charge. And your nation will be plundered by the wicked people that you trust. Now, there's a really profound application of point in this for us, friends. You know, in this life, it's so easy for us to trust in things other than the Lord. Maybe like Ahaz, we think, well, my future is controlled by politics. If I get the right politicians and the right policies, my life will be secure. Maybe we think our future is secured by the economy. Well, if I save enough and I make the right investments, my future is going to be secure. Maybe we think that it's our personal connections or our intelligence or our talents or our winning personality that's going to secure our future. But friends, whenever we entrust ourselves to something other than the Lord, whatever we allow to take the place of God in our lives, 
That is what's going to betray us and be our undoing in the end. Only the Lord is faithful. Anything else we trust ourselves to is an idol. And every idol is false and will prove faithless to us and will lead us to ruin. So friend, wherever you've chosen to displace the Lord, that is where you can expect trouble to come. And Ahaz trusted Assyria instead of God, and God says Assyria is going to be your undoing. All right, so we've seen the prophecy. And Alma, a young, unmarried, virginal woman will conceive. She will bear a son. She will call him Emmanuel. And he will be a sign that the invading alliance will be destroyed and that Assyria will invade and plunder Judah. We have seen that in some ways this prophecy seems like it must be talking about the virgin birth of Christ. And the New Testament tells us that's true. And in some ways this prophecy seems like it has to anticipate something in Isaiah's day, seven centuries earlier. How can we make sense of this? I think to understand this prophecy, we need to remember an important doctrine called progressive revelation. Sometimes in the Bible, God reveals some truth, and then later God gives more revelation about that same truth and clarifies what he said earlier. Let me give you a great example of this from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is a prophecy about Christ. Jesus tells us it is in Luke 4. And when we read this prophecy at first, we learn that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do a few things. He's going to comfort the afflicted. He's going to deliver the oppressed. And he's going to bring God's vengeance. If you only read Isaiah 61, you would think the Messiah is only going to come one time. And when he comes, he's going to do all of that. But in Luke 4, Jesus reveals, in fact, this is going to happen in stages. In his first coming, Jesus has come to show us God's grace. And in his second coming, that's when he's going to unleash ownage, right? Now, you don't learn that if you only read Isaiah. The later revelation of Luke 4 clarifies the earlier. I think that's what's happening in Isaiah 7 and 8. In Isaiah 7, it sounds like all of this, both the, the far things that point to Christ and the near things that talk to Ahaz, that it's all going to be fulfilled in just one child. One child will fulfill all of this, who will be a bor born to a virgin and named Emmanuel and will be assigned to Isaiah's contemporaries. But when we come to Isaiah 8, I think God reveals that, in fact, this one sign is two signs. There are two children. One who will serve as a sign to King Ahaz in the short term and one who will come in the far future, who will be an ultimate sign to the whole house of David, who promises ultimate hope for victory and salvation for the people of God. Let me show you why I say that. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Maharshalah Hashbaz. God tells Isaiah to set up a big sign, kind of like a billboard. Up till this point, Isaiah's only been dealing with the king. Now he's going to deal with the common people. And they're going to see what he's talking about because he's setting up a billboard to communicate with them. And on this billboard, he writes, Maharshalah Hashbaz. And it's a name, okay? The Hebrew tells us this is a name, some, some grammatical stuff. Well, whose name is this? Well, we find out in the next verses. Look at verse 2. He says, And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of 
Jeberechiah to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshalah Hashbaz. What is going on here? Well, Isaiah says first he gets some witnesses together who can legally attest to something. And then we find Isaiah with a woman conceiving a child. What is this? Well, the verb we find in verse 3, translated went to, is often found in the Old Testament describing the act of consummating a marriage. This might explain why Isaiah needed to round up some witnesses, because he was getting married. He's getting married to a woman called the prophetess. Could be she's called the prophetess because she's going to be his wife, or maybe she's a prophet in her own right. It's certainly possible. This is why I said earlier, I think Isaiah's first wife, the mother of Shear Jashub, has died. Because here it does seem like Isaiah is getting married again. And Isaiah consummates his marriage with his new wife, who up to that point would have been a young, unmarried woman of marriageable age who would have been a virgin. In short, she would have been an Almah. And as a result of the consummation of this marriage, the Almah conceives naturally, not miraculously. And in time, a son is born. And God tells Isaiah to name this son Maharshala Hashbaz. The name has prophetic significance. It means something like speed to the spoil, haste to the plunder. It's a really ominous name. It means someone is coming to cause a lot of destruction and take your stuff. What is the, uh, okay, so, so what does that refer to though? Okay, somebody's coming and going to do bad stuff. Who? Isaiah tells us. Look at verse 4. He says, for before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Isaiah says before Maharshalah Hashbaz can say mama or dada, the two nations that are invading will be destroyed by the Assyrians. Now this sounds remarkably like what was said in chapter 7 about the child whose birth was prophesied, right? In fact, this is very similar to chapter 7, verse 16. Here is a child who will be a sign to Ahaz and Isaiah's contemporaries that God will be faithful to them and destroy their enemies. Here is a child Ahaz can look to and remember God's promise. Now does, does that mean that this Maher Shalom Hashbaz is Emmanuel? Is he the total fulfillment of this prophecy, as many liberal scholars claim? No. He is a foretaste. He is a shadow of the ultimate fulfillment. In a sense, an Almah has conceived, but this isn't the stupendous miracle that was promised. This is why I think God chose to use this ambiguous word Almah, because there's a double fulfillment. This word Almah both describes what's happening here, this woman, the prophetess. And it also speaks of the, the woman who is a virgin who will conceive in the New Testament, Mary. Alma is a word that fits the bill to cover both of these scenarios. In a sense, an Alma has conceived, but it's not the main thing. In a sense, a child has been given, but he's not God with us. And yet, God had said he was going to give a child with prophetic significance to Ahaz about these matters, and here he is. It's a partial fulfillment. It's a half fulfillment. It's a poor shadow of the glory that will come later. But it's not, the, it's not the final thing. I think we see it's not the final thing as we keep reading. Look at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. 
Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel." Here God speaks a word of judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel that was making this invasion. What he says is, A long time ago you guys turned away from the house of David, which is here metaphorically represented by a river. And instead of following the king I gave you, you followed an imposter. So now you're going to get judged by Assyria. An invasion so terrible it's like a flood. But then that flood is going to, going to flow south. It's going to flow into Judah. All of Judah is going to be filled with invading Assyrians, like having water up to the neck. That's how bad it's going to be. But look at what Isaiah says at the end. He says, the Assyrians are going to fill your land, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the child, he said, was going to be born in chapter 7. And Isaiah says to Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you are the true owner of this land. You are the true owner of the promised land. Now, does Isaiah's son own the promised land? No, he's not a king. He's not part of the royal family. And in fact, who is it that owns the promised land? Leviticus 25 says, God says the land is mine. God owns the land. So Isaiah speaks to Emmanuel, the child whose name means God with us. And he says, Emmanuel, this is the land that you own. Very interesting. Let's keep going. Isaiah concludes this section of his prophecy with this. Verse 9. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Evil nations are coming against them. Israel and Syria and Assyria. Lots of people plotting against God and the Davidic dynasty. It's like Psalm 2, right? The nations rage and the people's plot against the Lord and his anointed. Yet Isaiah says, none of God's people will be vanquished, will be dominated by these enemies. The enemies of God will never crush the people of God. And why not? Because God is with us. That's a great truth. But in Hebrew, what is he saying literally? He's saying the reason the enemies of God's people will never prevail is Emmanuel. Emmanuel will deliver his people. Is this a reference to Isaiah's infant son? Is the little baby going to go out like a mighty warrior and fight all these countries? Of course not. Isaiah's son fulfills some of the expectations of chapter 7. But he's not Emmanuel. He's not the final fulfillment. Something more is in view. Isaiah's son is not miraculously born, he's naturally born. And God promised a miracle. Isaiah's son doesn't own the land. And in no way can Maher Shalal Hashbaz be seen as the one who always defends the people of God and gives them victory. In fact, after this chapter, we never hear of Maher Shalal Hashbaz again. Isaiah's son is a small part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. But in the end, it awaits its ultimate and true fulfillment in the future. Ahaz was given a sign to look at and remember God's faithfulness in his own time. But remember in chapter 7, Isaiah said, this sign was not only for Ahaz, it was for the whole house of David. And after Ahaz died and the centuries went by 
as the royal dynasty fell into collapse, as it went away in exile, as it returned to the promised land but was stripped of its power, the house of David could look back and remember God had sworn to give them a miraculous child, Emmanuel, a child that Isaiah says a lot about in the other chapters of this book. In chapter 11, we learn he is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He will breathe new life into the house of David when the dynasty seems finished. Chapter 9 says he will shoulder a government. The kingship will return to the house of David. He will rule in righteousness. He's no Ahaz. He's glorious in righteousness. He will rule forever. That's how God's promise to David that he'll have an everlasting dynasty will be fulfilled. Because in the end, there's going to be a king who reigns forever. A king who will be called the mighty God, the everlasting father. Indeed, he is Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelling in the midst of humanity, in true humanity. Born of a virgin. And generation after generation and century after century, the house of David waited until Matthew 1.18. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Out of nowhere, here's Joseph, a construction worker who happens to be from an old and venerable family, but he hasn't seen any benefits from it. And his betrothed turns up pregnant, and he thinks she's unfaithful. But an angel says, no, God has worked a miracle. The Alma has conceived. Emmanuel has come, the one who is truly God and truly man, the one who has the right to rule, the one who will deliver his people. And what will he deliver his people from? Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a name that means Yahweh is salvation. And Jesus has come to deliver his people from our greatest problem. Friends, in the end, Jesus will vanquish Satan and every demon and every political power and every unbeliever who raises their fist to heaven. But beyond all of that, Jesus has come first to deliver his people from sin. And Jesus has come to deliver us from sin by dying on the cross in our place. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 of his book, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus died on the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. And by so doing, he has given to all who repentantly believe forgiveness and peace and healing and new life. He gives us victory over every spiritual adversary. And Matthew says in 122 of his book, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is the true and ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7. The birth of Jesus, the God-man, our Savior. I want to say to you this morning, if you have never trusted Christ, I want to say to you what God said to Ahaz. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you keep making excuses 
and ignoring the reality of God and trusting yourself to something other than Christ, you will find only catastrophe and judgment. Trust in Christ and live. But friends, if you have come to Christ, then rejoice because God is faithful to his word because God is faithful to his people, because God gave his own son and sent him to this world to take on true humanity and vanquish our greatest adversary, to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserved, and to rise again so that we can enjoy the endless bliss that will characterize living in his glorious kingdom, in his presence, that will have no end ever. And because of Jesus, friends, we need fear no evil. For Emmanuel... Because God is with us.